You're listening to a Canucks Army podcast coming at you pre-taped from Mom's basement. Hey, Mom! We get some meatloaf! The meatloaf! We want it now! Oh, my goodness! Holy smokes! What hands! He went top shelf to beat Marble! Oh, is that a piece of work by Brock Besser? Look at these hands. Boy, are they quick. <laughs> Welcome to this week's edition of the Canucks Army Podcast with myself, Sathyar Shaw, and Joseph Dylan Burke, the managing editor of Canucks Army. JD, what's going on? How is the summer treating you so far? Uh, do you know how many articles I've written in these last two weeks? How many? I, I don't even know. Like, I, I can't count it on, on one hand even. Like, I am cruising through summer and loving every minute of it. Canucks aren't doing anything, and I just couldn't be happier. Yeah, it gets a nice little break. I've been, uh, I just came back from a little camping trip. Do, do you like camping? Because I know some people hate camping, some, some people like it, but I don't know, I kind of enjoy it. It seems like something that J-Pat would hate. Yeah, right? No if doubt. You listen to the podcast, you notice that he just doesn't enjoy stuff. Right, like music. Music or, or swimming at the beach. I mean, these are camping. Hate, but right. <laughs> he just hates them. Those two things, I figure camping is next on your chopping list. I love right. camping. Yeah, camping's fun. Yeah, I mean, hell, what's better than drinking around a campfire? No doubt, drinking, barbecuing, eating, just hanging around, and you know, going for a little swim, going for some fishing and everything like that. I mean, it's 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 great time. I mean, I really, I'm pretty outdoorsy in the summer. I love getting away and doing stuff like that. I'm big into fishing if I get a chance, so it's always fun. But you know, speaking of fishing, the Canucks went free agent fishing. I know that's a pretty pretty bad segue, but regardless, here we are. It's summertime. I'm not working very hard. I'm rusty. But regardless, the Canucks, I think, uh, had a good free agent day. I know there's been a lot of talk about whether they're rebuilding or not, but just in isolation, look at the players they signed. I mean, you had Andres Nielsen, you had Sam Gagne, uh, Alex Burmistrov, Michael Delzato, Patrick uh, Weirkot. So what did you make of what the Canucks did? Yeah, well, I wonder who you're referring to when you say that some are wondering whether it's a rebuild or not. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can think of somebody. But, um, no, like, I think you have a good point. Like, in a vacuum, I cannot take umbrage with any of these signings. Like, Sam Gagne is here on a very reasonable contract. Uh, he's somebody who I think has been significantly undervalued by the NHL. And, and it's kind of had a market adjustment where he has that one good year in, in Columbus, which a lot of people might be surprised to hear this, that, that good year he had was actually a lot closer to what he usually does than you might think. Um, I think if there's one problem I have with the Sam, the Sam Gagne contract, and this is just you know me getting nitpicky here, is, is players like him, when they're market inefficiencies, that's when you want to strike, right? So I think the value of a Sam Gagne last year wasn't that he was like this 50-point all-star. It was that, you know, Columbus was able to get him while the rest of the league undervalued him for so little. And and they got to reap the rewards of that market inefficiency, right? Like there's a saying in hockey analytics circle, uh, you don't want to be the guy who pays what Benoit Pouliot is worth. You want to be the guy who's ahead of the curve in that sense. And I feel like the Canucks are perhaps one step behind, but... To that exact end, their contract isn't egregious enough that it's going to bite them in the ass like three years down the road. Um, you know, I have concerns about whether Gagne is going to be able to be as effective in Vancouver as he was in Columbus because, speaking about the circumstances, he was on a fourth line with like Scott Hartnell and, and I think Josh Anderson, if memory serves. Like they, they had a loaded fourth line that was getting like the easiest assignments. I think if you look at most competition metrics, Sam Gagne faced either the lowest or second lowest competition of any Blue Jackets forward, so um, I think people need to adjust expectations. I think 40 points is reasonable. Um, I like the Ander- Anders Nielsen signing. Uh, I think it's a bit rich, but really, again, you're splitting hairs there. It's 2.5. Like, uh, like I heard that a lot, even they overpaid. Yeah, maybe by a million. That's 2.5 million. I, I really don't care. I mean, even Sam Gagne, what's the league average salary? 3.5 million? Three million or something like that. So he's just around the league average salary, and and I think he produced. 
Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you, you can make the case he's a league average player, but you're not really overpaying. You're paying market value, you know, exactly down the middle for him. And it's only three years for, for Sagani, so I don't really have a problem with that contract either. And, you know, he is versatile enough and he is specialized enough to help you in a lot of different ways. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the succession plan, and I don't think any of us really. Um, think that Sam Gagne is going to be a long-term answer as a first or second line center when Henrik Sedin retires, but at the very least, it is some soft cover, right? I mean, it's something you have. I mean, there's some, it's, he's a legitimate NHL player who can play top six minutes, who can sort of get out there and do something, not be a complete embarrassment. And I think there is some value in that. Um, and I'm glad the Canucks didn't over, overextend and you know, go to a four or five-year deal with anybody. Yeah, that's that's the key here, right? Like, none of these deals are going to impede the Canucks' ability to um, to to kind of surround their next wave of young talent with good players, right? So the Canucks, I've been thinking about it, Sad. They're, they're not three years away from the playoffs. They're so far away. It's like, think four. And, and none of these deals are going to hamper them four years from now. They won't be an issue in the short term either. Like, to that exact end, they were good signings. Yeah, and and the and the thing is, um, if you look at the Canucks, yeah, I don't think they're a playoff team in any of the next two or three years, maybe even four. But the crazy thing about hockey is, you know, you can get a luck-driven year and somehow make it into the playoffs. And I think that if you have enough league-average players in your lineup and you have a league-average goalie, if you're a league-average team and you're, say, a 500 club, you could somehow turn into a playoff team. I'm not saying this this year, but over the next three or four years, even if the team's not great, they could sort of luck into having a – we've seen this often in the NHL too, right? And it does happen. You're not necessarily always the Oilers. So I see value in having that. The question, though, is – you know, how much better are you? Do you think the Canucks are appreciably better than they were last year like, with these signings? I think there's like there's there's a, a volatility, a, a good and bad volatility, not always a negative descriptor. And this is that I think that they've put enough talent into this team that it makes it more likely they become like the Toronto Maple Leafs when they had that PDO year, or the Colorado Avalanche when they had the PDO year, and you go on and on, right? I think there's a, there's a heightened risk of that, and I say risk because I think that if this team makes the playoffs this year, you know they're going to take that as the reality and not an aberration, and that can be hugely detrimental to the long-term outcome of this team, because you know they're looking for that validation. So I think that's kind of a concern of mine, is that it makes the Canucks more prone to being that team. Um, whether the, it makes them a significantly better team without that kind of good luck, I'm skeptical. <laughs> yeah, no, that's the thing. Yeah, and I think the play, I think the two players. Uh, well, let's go back to the market inefficiency thing for a second. The two guys that should sort of fit that bill: Burmistrov, although he's never really had a good year for you to say he's he's an undervalued player. He's a guy that just hasn't hit yet or will never hit, right? But there is that that, that tie-in with uh, Newell Brown and the fact that Brown got to see him up close and personal and thinks there's more there. And the fact that he did sort of produce at about a, at a half a point per game rate or slightly higher when he was with the Coyotes. I think what he had like 12, 13 points in 21 games, something like that. I'm not sure exactly the total, but he had a decent sort of performance for them. So maybe there was something more there. And Patrick Wirkoch, I just think, is a guy that has been undervalued and might end up being maybe their best signing because he could be the guy that has the most trade value next season. He could be. I mean, he, like... I'm, I'm of two minds with Weirkoch. I don't think he was as good as we used to say he was in the, the analytics community, and I certainly mean the royal we uh, when, I, when I make that statement. But he's still better than the league gives him credit for. Like, I think Patrick Weirkoch can play in your top six. And and he, what, what is he on the Canucks depth charts at? Like, seventh? Seventh? Yeah, and then if you go back to last year, I mean, he'll, he'll get reps, he'll play. But if you go back to last year, I mean, yeah, he's an improvement on Spiza for sure, I think. And he's not even going to be playing, you know, in Spiza's spot. He's better than Biega. He's better than anything else the Canucks trotted out um, when, when guys got injured last season. And as much as we like Trampkin, it was like he was really good, right? I mean, if you look at – I mean, Trampkin, the, the thing about Trampkin was he had potential. You saw a lot of growth for a guy his size. Everything was relative. I mean, even though um, he wasn't amazing yet, he wasn't playing – he was definitely not playing out top four level. He was arguably not even playing out a top six level but you're seeing marked improvement. You sort of saw through the eye test that this guy has a lot of potential and talent. But in terms of his playing ability and effectiveness, um, you know, a guy like Weirkoch and Delzato, 
I think Dale's Otter and Wirkoch are two pretty big additions to the blue line, relatively speaking, considering how below the bar was. So those guys could sort of have the biggest impact on any of the free agent signings, I think, for this team. Yeah, and, and, and you know why I think you're right? Because when you look at this Canucks blue line, what's the, been the biggest problem for the last, like, three years? Moving the puck, scoring. Yeah, yeah, they can't exit the zone to save their lives. And, and that's why I've been a really staunch Alexander Edler defender. Although he had a rough last six months, I'll grant you that. Uh-huh. Um, Alexander Edler can move the puck. And whenever he would get injured, this team couldn't get past their own blue line, much less center ice. Saves our life. Uh, for all Delzato's warts, and there are plenty, this is a very imperfect player, he can move the puck. For all Patrick Weirkoch's warts, he can move the puck. They're not... Like, Delzato's an okay skater. Weirkoch could use a little work, but they can get the puck up the ice. And I think that's huge. Yeah, and Delzato, I mean, um, I was I was just checking. I love checking out Own the Puck and the hero charts and versus archetypes and stuff. It's not like that it's 100% accurate, but it gives you a good barometer. And looking up Delzato, I mean, if you look up his ice time, uh, first assists, uh, assists for 60, goals for 60, you look at his shot generation, it's, it's literally at a top one, two defender level. But his shot suppression is pretty much like a third pairing level. So... Even though his offensive game is legitimately top-pairing ability, his defensive game is third-pairing ability. So he pretty much comes in as a number four, five, three to five defensive, depending on how well he plays in a given year. Which is, for this Canucks team, I think it could be a pretty big boost. Especially on the power play, where they don't have a left-handed guy who can do anything of any consequence. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And I, wasn't it you who tweeted that once the Canucks signed Delzato, he immediately became their best offensive defenseman? Yeah, it's no question. I think that's it's, yeah. un, it's indisputable. Yeah, I think the only threat to that uh, to his to his throne on that uh, on that aspect of the game is probably Troy Stetcher. No, I, I agree. Like it's if you're looking at it right now, without accounting for player growth or whatever, he's probably the Canucks' best offensive option. No question. It's gonna help out on the power play too. He really is. Yeah, I really think so. And if you look at the left-handed shot, because we've seen Alex Adler, he's just. Um, I think the, the days of him being a power play performer are done, unless Newell Brown can somehow uh, give him some confidence or get something out of him this year, which is not inconceivable, right? I mean, um, has Edler completely dried up, or is he just you know a victim of circumstance and style of play? But I think Delzato, I mean, this is a guy who's had, what, 40 points a couple of different times. Um, he scored over 10 goals uh, a couple of times. You know, we, the only defenseman on the Canucks who's gotten over 30 points is Alex Edler. So uh, I know Stetcher, I'm, I'm with you. I think Stetcher could have a big year, but don't forget, he's a defenseman. It's also a sophomore year. We, you oftentimes see defensemen scuffle a bit in their second year. You saw Shane Goss as good as he was his rookie year last year. He even got healthy scratched a bunch of times. I mean, he struggled. So um, I think long-term, Stetcher's a better defenseman than Dallas Auto. I, I, wouldn't, I would never trade Stetcher for Dallas Auto, even if he added a couple of picks to it. I wouldn't make that trade, unless it's like you know two first-round picks or something, then a different story. But point being... Yeah. Offensively, I think he can make a pretty big impact right now. And I know it's a two-year contract, but he's 27 years old. I really don't have. A, I, I've always thought Delzato was a decent player, and considering you're only paying him what three million per year over two years, it's really not that big of a commitment. And you could conceivably trade him this year or next year, depending on how well he plays and what sort of need comes up elsewhere in the league. Yeah, I, I think that's like one of the areas where I kind of you, you bring up trading Delzato and. And I guess this might apply to, to Sam Gagne too, right? I mean, we talked about whether the Canucks are rebuilding or not. Who are their trade chips next deadline? That's that's one area where, like, maybe they can move Dell's auto. Maybe. Um, but but the fact that he has that extra year, it, you know, it can it can be prohibitive. It can. And, and here's... It can be. Now, I agree with you. So the way I'm sort of putting this is... These are the options and the flexibility you have with these contracts. The other conversation is, what will the Canucks actually do? I think even Sam Gagne is a flexible deal because if let's say he sucks in year two and you really think he's terrible, you can buy him out, stretch it over two years. It's really not that big of a cap hit. I mean, it's a really easy contract to get rid of if he's a real big bust, which he won't be. I don't think not to that extent. And Delzato, even though... You know, it's not likely you want to trade him, but if you think it's a disaster, it's really easy to get get away from that contract if you really need to. Um, the weird coach one is the one I come back to because he is UFA. He is a young defenseman. He's the type of guy that if he shows okay and it has RFA status, 
Now, the Canucks may want to keep him if he plays well or whatever the case is, but I think he could be a sneaky trade ship at the deadline if you're willing to trade him. Yeah, I, I suppose that's a, that's a good counter to that. I um, I always wonder about Weir Koch, though, because like like we were saying, I mean, the way the way we view him and the way the, the league views him seems to be... It'd be hard to argue with his bona fides if he's somebody who steps into a top-four role, which the way that defensemen drop in the city is very conceivable. <laughs> Oh, it's very conceivable. I think it's a very good chance that happens. But the question is, you know, what what will the Canucks actually do? Are they making these moves as part of a long-term rebuild where they're sort of accruing some assets and this will allow them to explore trading, say, Edler uh, or Tanev, actually, because now you have some other veterans. Maybe this sort of opens the door to talk to Sutter about, you know, trading him or something like that. If that happens, I think these signings are actually really smart and shrewd because it allows you to do other things. But do you think, in actuality, that is a realistic scenario? No. <laughs> I think we had Jason Botcher on the show. Was it like post-draft or pre-free agency? I can't remember. Pre-free agency. And he goes, their mantra is, we're going to be better than people think. And and you look at the way they built this team, and it really fits with what that, that message is. Um you bring up Brandon Sutter. It's going to be really interesting next year when, when Gagne has 15 more points than him and is making significantly less and doesn't have no trade restrictions. <laughs> well, well, here's the thing. If Gagne even has a 40-point season, you know how many Canucks players had over 40 points last year? Like three? Three. Henrik, Daniel, and Bo Horvat. So, I mean, when we're sitting here saying he's only a 40-point guy, for this team, that's a pretty big boost. Yep. But that doesn't mean that a big boost for a 60, you know, 68, 69-point team means that you're actually all that much better. I still think this team is a 75-point team if everything sort of goes their way. I could see them somehow getting to 500. Like we said before, anything can happen in hockey, but I really don't see this team having an outlier year next season. I, I just don't see that happening, not to that extent where they make the playoffs. And I think in reality, even if they think they're going to be better than people think, so to speak, once we get to the deadline next year, the Canucks will very much be forced into a seller situation. Whether they pull the trade off or not is a big question. See, that's the thing, though. I, I don't see that because, like, when you read some of what Jim Benning has said, when you look at some of their moves, I don't think that he's barely even paying lip service to the notion of a rebuild. And and here's here's one thing that, like, really scares me. So they've got Erica Branson. They're taking trade calls on him on the draft floor. The one package we hear that they tried to put together was good Branson for Demers. Now, if you want to look at that, look at that in a vacuum. Demers makes Knucks a better team. He's he's so much better than good Branson. I can't believe this is even a debate in Canucks Twitter when I see it. Um, but but what, why aren't they chasing futures? Because they're not rebuilding. No, they're not rebuilding. See, they're not rebuilding the way we envision them rebuilding. They have their own sort of idea of rebuilding. Um, the positives have been bad, which is just being sort of, yeah, which is being bad, but, but it's also, I think there has been a shift, but it's become, I think they were, I'd say before when they said they're trying to do it both ways, it was more like 75% we're trying to win now, 25% to the future. You give them I too think, much credit. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that was 90%. 90 10. Well, you know, you know, perhaps. But let, let, let's just say, you know, 75, 80. Let's just say 80 for, let's just split the difference. Let's say 80, yeah, yeah. You know, 80, 20. I think now it's coming down to, you know, closer to 50, 50. I think that's where the shift has happened, right? I mean, where. They're signing free agents, but they're not signing anybody over the age of 27, really, right? They're not signing anybody old. They're not signing anybody past three years. They're doing one-year, two-year contracts. They're taking a chance on a guy like Bermistrov, Burkach. They drafted differently. They went for high upside, high-skilled players. Um, they did look to add a pick late. I mean, they were looking to add some draft picks, even though they weren't willing to trade Tanner or Good Branson. So I think they're finally at the 50-50 point of sort of that trying to rebuild and stay competitive at the same time. I think we'd all like to see that shift more onto the rebuild side. But but you saw the, like I'm sure you heard like Jim Benning, it like we look at his deadline like the best week he's ever had as a general manager. He said in the paper he would not have traded Yannick Hansen if not for the expansion draft, and that's considered one of his best moves. Yeah, no, and th this is all fair. No, and we talk we talk about this. And we've talked we've talked about this before, right? Like the Canucks did some rebuilding things, but a lot of it was sort of 
because of circumstance and situation, right? It wasn't because this was the plan all along. And I think gun marriage to the rebuild. Yeah, pretty much. But I, I do think that the approach so far has made a lot of sense. And I do think here's the funny thing. I think even if their plan right now, as it was last year, was to keep these guys together, not trading any of these guys. I think what's going to happen is the season will unfold a certain way. Certain guys will step up. Certain guys will falter. Certain situations will become real because once once you're in, in the offseason, especially at this time of year, before you even get the training camp and the preseason games, there's a lot of optimism. Everybody feels really good about things. You're like, you know what? You look at the Canucks roster. You're like, you know, you got Sidine, Sidine Granlin, new head coach, Berchi Horvath, Besser, Erickson, Gagne, maybe Goldova, maybe Vermeistrov, Gon Sutter. You got Rodin, you got Dorsett, you got Boucher. You're like, oh, you add Del Zotto, you know, you add Weirkoch, Gubranson's back, maybe he's better, Edler and Stetcher. And you're like, Markstrom and Nielsen, maybe Nielsen's actually good. And you're like, well, maybe this Canucks team couldn't make the playoffs, maybe if everything goes right. But once reality sets in, you're like, well, okay, I know where we're at. And I think just by virtue of them not being a very good team, not being very deep, not being very talented, they're going to be in a situation where they're going to be forced to make a deal at the deadline, or try to at least. You know, they try with Hamus, they failed, but at least they got to that point the last two years. And I see them doing the same thing this year, even if they have different plans right now. Yeah, I mean, we talked about the last trade deadline being a, a shotgun wedding. I think them trying to trade Hamhuis was the scenario where they had the shotgun at their back and they just let the guy fire. Uh, <laughs> Man. Walked up but, to the altar and no dice, but... Didn't go well. I mean, that wasn't their finest moment, but I, I think the thing that gets locked... It was, it was terrible to watch, and it, there was a lot of inexperience. I mean, the reality, too, is... The Canucks have shifted their approach in many ways. Now you can say it's whether it was an experience, different philosophies, but I think a big part of it was, you know, you had a new president, you had a new GM, and they really had to learn the job early. I'm not saying they've learned enough. And the big question is, the last few moves, I mean, over the last four months, the Canucks have made up some good moves at the deadline, at the draft, free agency. I mean, things are looking better. You start, I mean, hey, I've sort of started jotting down names. If you go through the Canucks prospect list and all the guys they've added over the past few years, I know it's it's been four off seasons now, so it's not like you're not going to recruit players over four off seasons, but it's getting decent. I mean, would you say the Canucks prospect pool now is sort of around the you know midway point in the league? Is the league average maybe slightly higher? Yeah, yeah, I think it's fair to say that the Canucks are like just outside the top ten. Yeah, I mean they're probably and you can make the argument ten to fifteen somewhere in there. Yeah, certainly. I, but I mean like, sad. They've been so bad for so long. Yeah. No, they have. This is the reality. You'd almost have to try to be that bad with the quality of draft picks they've had and the quality of tradable assets they've had. It's... Oh, I started this podcast happy, then we started talking about the rebuild, and... <laughs> now you're not happy anymore. I'm back in jerk mode. But... Back in jerk mode. But, I mean, like, I don't know. It's... It is positive. Uh, they got Jonathan Dahlin and, and Pedersen and... Like you said, they've added some prospects. It's just they really got to kick it into overdrive because I don't even think they have the, the best pool in their division. No, I mean, you can make that case for sure. I mean, I, I sort of jotted down their top 10 players in my estimation right now, prospects, that is. I mean, I got Pedersen number one, even ahead of Besser, even though Besser is sort of right there. I got Besser two, Ulevi three. I got Ulevi three, Demko four, Darlene five, Goldobin six, Godet seven, Lind eight, Gadjevich nine, for 10 and 10. Yeah, yeah, I, I can, I can fucks with that. That's a good list. Yeah, I mean, and if you look at, I mean, that's a decent list. The problem is the high end upside. You do have Pedersen and Besser, who you could sort of see as having first line potential, right? Pedersen could be a first line center. Besser has the potential to be a first line winger. Would you agree on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. So, so you have two of those. You have Yelavi, who could be a top pairing defenseman. You have Demko, who could be a starting goalie, and then Dolly and Goldobin, Goddard, Lynn, Gadsbridge, Pretan, and have varying uh, up degrees of upside between being a top, you know, being a second-line center, being second-line players or third-line players, right? I mean, that's sort of what you're looking at. You know, unless Vertanen is only a fourth-line player or a bust, which we hope he isn't, but that's very possible. So I think the list is better, but the reality is here, not every single one of these players will pan out. Reality is a lot of them will flake out or not be good. Somebody we don't expect that's not even on this list will surprise and be better than a few of these guys for sure, too. So, I mean, that possibility exists. But that's why you need more, because chances are a lot of these guys won't pan out. Yep. Yeah, I think if you, like, uh, here's here's an analogy that I always come up with. It's like if you have four Brock Bessers, one of them is going to pan. It is going to flail out. Uh, two of them are going to become, like, middle six players, and the Canucks have the one that's going to be a first-liner. 
<laughs> yeah. You know, it's like right. it's just how prospects work. Even even the guys that you think the best of often don't work out. It's just it's a numbers game. It is. So you you need more. It's nice to see that they've added, but see here's the thing. I mean, you look at sort of how miffed we were for so long, even though they were doing some things for the future, although not not nearly enough. And they finally got to the point over the last little while here where they're doing a lot of things for the future, a lot more than than they did before. And I think that's a very good positive. We'd like to see a bit more, but I think they're on the right track. The big question now is, what do you do as next season progresses? Because this is a really big year. If you continue on the same path and you make another couple of trades by the deadline and you're going to get a top five pick again next year, if that happens, you know, are, are we having much of an issue with what's been going on? I know you, we can't throw the past three years out the window, but in terms of if you take it from the deadline up until next year and they make another couple of moves at the deadline, would that be the right track? I, I think, given the the lowered expectations, yes. I, I wouldn't be ecstatic because uh, I, I remain skeptical of how willing they are to make moves at the deadline. How skeptical, you know, I am of of some of the moves that they passed up this summer. So, I think it's everything's relative, right? And I think that. Um, Fairly or otherwise, I think we, we hold the Canucks to a bit of a lower standard, right? Like, they make a few rebuild-ish moves, and, and we're all happy. But I think I would be okay with that. The thing, too, is, as we talked about, you have to follow this up. I think it's been positive, and I'm willing to cut them some slack and be, and be positive. I think every, every single one of these moves are justifiable. And when you do justifiable things, even if I don't completely agree with it, I'm not going to sit here and act like I know better than you know people running hockey teams. But when you do, when you continually do things that don't make a lot of sense, you deserve to get called out for it. I'm not saying I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt, but I, I look at a guy like Branson who's going to be UFA at the end of the year, and I say, well, okay, sure. Um, they could have traded him for a draft pick and a prospect now, which I would have loved. I would have been happy with. But if they end up trading him at the deadline for, say, a you know second round pick or even late first or whatever the case, you get a decent package at the deadline for him, then – you know all the you know hullabaloo and and uh, and anger over the summer over not trading him when you had the chance will go out the window. So I think we do have to sort of look at it over the next few months and see what else happens. Positive move so far, but you really got to make sure you play the next year right and don't think you're better than you actually are. Yeah, that's fair. I always forget that that Branson is staring down UFA. Right, uh, and they're gonna have to make a decision on him. If they re-sign him to a big contract, we're gonna have a podcast we'll be talking about. You know the ramifications of that, but we'll as it stands, emergency podcast. We'll have emergency podcast. But as it stands, I mean, they did try to trade him, but they tried to trade him for a guy that was going to actually be on the roster for the next four four years. But he's uh, twenty nine years old. Twenty nine years old. Like, yeah, so that, that that's not very promising. <laughs> so, but I'm just saying. Move. But if you move, <laughs> that's not a rebuild move at all. But if you do move him um, at the deadline for a draft pick and a prospect, because you're looking at, well, you know, we're not going anywhere this year. I'll take that, and and maybe that'll work out. I just think the Cubs have a lot of flexibility right now, more than people actually think they do. That's fair. That's. But, that's I, fair. but the question is, what what will you do with it? I just think that um, we have to look at the contextually as, okay, what situation are they in, and what would they actually do? I think the situation they put themselves in with these additions means they have a lot of flexibility to do a lot of things in the future. I mean, you know, they could, you know, just stare at the city and if, if the city and say say to them next year we want two-year deals you know i don't care i know they want one-year deals but let's just say they want two-year deals and if you don't want to give it to us we're going to go elsewhere well now that you have you know you have Ganya and you have horvat you do have sort of Pedersen and the you know coming you have godet now it gives you the confidence to say you know what if you guys don't want you can go right and, and that would you know even if you don't trade him for assets letting guys like that go would be a pretty big rebuilding move because it opens up to these two really big spots and he's going to be really really bad for another couple of years so I think you have a lot of options now to do a lot of different things. It's just a matter of what they actually decide to do. It'll be interesting to see what happens with the Sedins because they have to be getting sick of this, right? At some point, you, you would think so. I, and I wonder how... I know they keep saying we want to help the kids grow, we want to live in the city, we've spent our whole lives here. But you saw how frustrated they were the last couple of years. One more year of that, will they want to just continue playing here and losing? Or will they just say to themselves, you know what? together let's go do a year or two you know with whatever team and see if we can get a chance to make the playoffs at least i mean like here's here's where i question how eager the Sedins are to, to take part in this rebuild like they seem to get progressively less into it as the season goes on which is understandable there's a lot of losing involved yada yada but like they 
Oh my god, they reacted so negatively to, to McCann and Vertanen. Oh, they did. But I think part of that too was justified. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was totally justified, right? But there's going to be a few more of those scenarios. And, and you listen to them this year, I think towards the end of the year they made a couple of comments like we didn't have the kids and it was sort of, they, they said it as a positive. And, and that kind of, to me, kind of raises some flags. Like, do they really want to do this? And, and to that exact end, I could not blame them in the slightest if they didn't. They've earned their chance at a cup chase. They've earned their chance at the cup chase, but the Canucks don't owe them anything else. They owe them the money owed on their contracts. They owe, they owe them to abide by the terms of their contracts, but they don't owe them anything else. The Canucks don't owe them a chance of winning in Vancouver for the next few years. The Canucks don't have to go and get a bunch of free agents. The Canucks don't have to make win-now moves for the cities. The Canucks don't owe that to the cities. Let's just make that clear. The Canucks owe them a lot of respect and gratitude, all those things, but you don't owe them anything beyond that. Not at this stage of their careers. I mean, they're being very well compensated for what they're doing right now. I mean, they got retirement contracts pretty much, right? I mean, I know they had a couple of good years out of it, but the last two years, getting $7 million per season for the production they've done, you know, I mean, they're getting very well compensated. I don't think the Canucks owed them anything beyond that at this point. No. No, I I mean, like, would they owe it to them if, if let's say the Sedins want to trade to a cup contender? Do they owe that to them? Well, if, if they want to go, of course you owe, you owe it to them to trade them. I mean, you could not do it if you really wanted to, but if the cities come up to you and say, we want a chance to win and you get a chance to get something for us, they'd be stupid not to make that move, right? I mean, I think I think the Canucks, even, even Lyndon and Benning, if, if the cities came up to them and said, hey, guys, listen, we we just we need a chance to go somewhere. You guys have a chance to trade us. Do you think the, the city and the, they would try to talk them out of it? I think they just say, okay, sure. They could spin that in their favor, too. And I think part of the part of the organization would be somewhat relieved because, you know, it gives you a chance to move on to a different direction and not be beholden to older guys. But as far as Lyndon and Benning go, I know they want to keep them. But I think if they walked up to them, could you see the Canucks trying to convince them to stay? Hmm. I don't know. And well, here's one thing I wonder about, right? Because the Sedins have been in the media, uh, in some of Trevor Lyndon's language, they've been the reason, quote unquote, that the Canucks can't rebuild, which is preposterously. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's garbage. Yeah, I'm gonna leave it at preposterous. No, it's garbage. Uh, that that, that I, comment, I've always said that. One. Yeah, that's garbage. That it, the the Canuck, the Sedins do not prevent the Canucks from rebuilding. They don't. No, I mean, like, can you imagine that train of thought if you just looked at it objectively? Like, well, we've got two good players. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, we got two good players, so we can't rebuild. It's it's, it's 14 million. The salary cap's what 70, 75 million, right? I mean, 14 million. I know 14 million doesn't jump change, but that means you got 61 million open outside of those two contracts. Not that you don't have commitments, but put put 14 million. Though, if they trade them. Well, exactly, but and I still think the 14 million isn't as big a deal as people make it out to be. Not when you're rebuilding. It's it's not ideal. It's not, but no, I, I get it. I mean, the cap space is better, but. You know, just because if you had say forty-five million tied up for the next four years, I'd say, okay, you know what, you might have to try to win now because you're not getting rid of these contracts. You owe this much, maybe you just gotta be like, fuck it, we, you know, you just gotta go for it. But fourteen million commit a long term to two guys in their late thirties should not force you down a path you don't want to go. No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, that line of thinking has just been like the most eye-roll-inducing part of covering this team for the last like three years. Yeah, no. So that that doesn't doesn't slide. And at least the way I look at it is, I see some positives. And there was a time, you know, seven eight months ago, when I was like, I'm not even sure they they do this. I mean, I, I, not that I was trepidatious about their draft, but I was really curious to see, you know, what they're going to target. Because don't forget, you know, Benning said, you know, was was it six seven months ago or a few months ago, whenever it was, he said, well, we got to add a lot of, you know, skill in our draft. We, we 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 realize we need to add a lot of skill to our lineup. We need to draft skilled players. And he did follow through with that. Yeah, Benning's language has changed a lot in the last few months. Um, maybe he's learning on the job, perhaps. But it's it's kind of gone from like this this antiquated like we need road clearers, we need guys who are gonna stop the cycle. And we heard that for years, like people who are hard to play against, like Brandon Sutter. And and now it's just all about skill with him, skill and speed. Something happened. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, the vision not working out is what happened. when, Because the plan was, you know, you have these skilled guys, you add Sutter, you get a little bit more out of them. You know, they, they thought certain guys would take another step. And the reality just is, 
they're just not that good right now. You're just not. And when when you're not that good, you got to be realistic about things. And I think they sort of finally realized, damn, like, you know, Sutter's not going to be. You know, I, I know they've, you know, bots talk about how they think he could be a 25 goal scorer, but I, I think they realize Sutter's not going to be a big point producer, right? I mean, he's not going to be a guy that's going to get you 60 points in a season. So when you have literally no one on your roster other than Horvat that has 60 point potential, I think it's a pretty obvious situation where you need some skill, right? I mean, I don't think you could deny it at that point. No, and and I think that's that's a good segue into our, our next conversation that we should have about about Bo, Bo Horvat. Sorry, a bit of a tongue twister there. Um, we we shouldn't litigate his contract, the value, the term. I think we've we've kind of spilled enough ink on that and and enough verbiage rather. But this contract is going to say a lot about what the Canucks, how the Canucks view him, and and how big a part he's going to play in this rebuild. What, what do you see Bo Horvat as now and and two years from now? What I do think, you think he is. You see, I have a really hard time answering this question because it's a twofold situation, really. One, he was drafted as a checking line type of guy, a guy who's you know ideal third line center, you know maybe produces a little bit. But you look at his three years; he's had at coming off EL an ELC, he's gotten better every single year. He's had a forty point season. He's had a fifty point season. He's finally got over twenty goals. I know some of the analytics numbers aren't great. But his even strength goals uh, production um, percentages is pretty solid too, right? So, I mean, I think Bo Horvat has exceeded expectations through every step of the way so far. So I have a hard time saying he can't be a first-line center. I, I'm with you, though. I do worry that some people are overvaluing him, saying that you know he's, he's for sure a first-line franchise player. I'm not sure he's going to be that good. But I, I am cautious in putting a ceiling on Bo Horvath and saying he's no more than a second-line center. Maybe he's not, but I mean, look at it, dude. Third year, 50 points. If he follows the same trajectory and keeps moving upwards, if he does get 60, maybe 70 points one day, is that not a first-line center almost? Well, if you want to look at it like raw point production, he's already a first-line center. He right. crossed, he crossed that line. Sure, but yeah, 1A. But I'm talking about a legitimate first line, a guy you can actually legitimately, you know, look, you know, looking at yourself in a mirror and say he's a first-line center. I mean, you know... He can maybe be. I know defensively he's not good enough. But do you really think he has a ceiling, a hard ceiling right now? Do you see it that way? No, and and partly because I'm terrified about putting that ceiling above him. Like you said, we've done that for three years in a row, and he keeps taking a sledgehammer to it. Yeah, maybe we should just keep doing this when he does it, and he sees expectations. Oh, I just think you know, he's third line center. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should just say that. We should just doubt Bo about every year to get more out of him. And then once you retire, say we just we just did it for you, Bo. We just wanted you to be better every year. I have. And then we're doing Canucks Nation a favor. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's <laughs> that is what motivates Bo Horvat. <laughs> yeah, two bozos on a podcast. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna be like, you listen to the CA podcast, don't you? <laughs> yeah, no. I, I've got such a hard time with him, though. I really do. I don't know what he is. I don't know what he can be. I just know that I think he's a bit overvalued in this market. And I think it's sort of a byproduct of the fact that, like, what else are you going to cheer for? Out of the 30 teams in the league, he was the lowest leading point scorer for any team. And he's 51 points. Yeah, I mean, like, he's a really imperfect player. And, and like, his defensive game is just, like, after two years, you might be able to go, maybe it's usage, maybe it's bad luck, maybe something's not clicking. But I think we have to come to terms with the fact that Bo Horvat's just not very good defensively. No, he definitely hasn't been. I mean, I'm not sure how much better he's going to get. I'm, I'm really hoping Travis Green can sort of um, fix that part of his game up because you're right. If, if that if that part of his game doesn't become even average, then you're getting to the point where maybe all the points don't even matter as much as they should. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, some of his possession metrics kind of went north as, as the season uh, progressed. Like, I think he finished the season as somebody who had a, a positive negative a positive impact on suppressing shot attempts, um, a negligibly positive impact. Uh, when you look at it through through um, data that's based on shot location, shot quality, he still looks awful defensively, like just brutal. And and I, I don't know, like, can you build around somebody who is so porous defensively? I mean, like. He was 17th on the Canucks in five-on-five Corsi last year. Okay, so, right, which, but, but here's the thing. What sort of contract 
what sort of a deal um, do you think would be detrimental? Well, the Canucks should be sending Steve Eiserman like some flowers because the Tyler Johnson deal I think sets sets a ceiling and it sets a really hard ceiling because if you try and tell any team that Bo Horvat can even hold a candle to Tyler Johnson, that's an ugly conversation. <laughs> and one that's not not rooted in reality. So I had I had some concern that the Canucks were going to get forced into a situation where it's like Bo Horvat's all they got, so they have to pony up five plus. But I feel like now that Tyler Johnson only got five, and they bought up some UFA years too, maybe we're looking at a situation where Bo Horvat's going to be forced by the market to take a, a contract that is more reflective of his actual value. Right, and and, and that's sort of the Four thing now, with. Maybe. Four and a half, maybe, maybe. But the thing is, if you're looking at building around a guy, if you're paying him less than six million, even is that a sort of contract that screams to you franchise player? I'm not sure it is, right? I, I think it does sort of set a precedent on your team that this guy has a high salary, and if a guy's even better than him, um, it does sort of change things. If he's not getting seven or north of six million, is that sort of a contract that screams franchise player to you? No, but by that same token, I think there's one thing I'm confident about, or not confident about it, that I don't want to put ceilings on this kid because he just keeps proving me wrong. But I don't think Bo Horvat is a franchise player. I don't. And, and if he has a con, sorry, if he has a contract that reflects that, I don't think that's the worst thing ever. No, it's not. And it, um, like I, it's about setting a precedent too. That's a point that I think gets lost in the mix sometimes. Because Tyler John, like. I keep going back to the Tyler Johnson one. He he signs his deal with the Lightning, and Andre Pilat. What does he take? Five point three. Yeah, right, right, right. And These things have and trickle down effects. They do have trickle trickle, trickle down effects, and it, and it does matter. But and that's sort of why I think we've talked about this before. A two-year bridge deal would be an ideal situation right now because you know what? I would say forget it. Give him four and a half even over the next two. You know, just make him happy. Give him nine million total over the next two years, and then sort of negotiate. If you think he's awesome, then you can actually get him for a longer term than you have now. You can get him until he's thirty years old. Because if he is the real deal over the next two years, you're going to have no problem giving him whatever money you want. And the fact that you can buy even more UFA years at the end of the next two years, I think that should be something that. Um, the Canucks should seriously consider. And if you give Bo Horvat $9 million total over the next two years, I think it's hard for him to turn that down, even on a bridge. I think that's a respectable bridge contract. If you're giving him you know, two years at $6 million or something, I think you're going to have a hard time convincing him. But if you give him good money for the next two years, maybe you can talk him into it. And, and another thing, too, is, is that's a pretty hefty qualifying offer, too, right? There is a sense of security. Like This is one of those rare instances where being an RFA works in the player's favor. Because if he gets qualified, it's a minimum of 4.5. And in fact, I think he might get a raise. Um, I wish Ryan Beach was on the show right now. He could tell us in a, in a heartbeat. Right, exactly, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm fairly certain that that gives him some sense of security there because it's if the Canucks want to keep him, that's the price of admission, and there is no wiggle room unless they want to let him go to free agency, which would be kind of unwise. Right, or, or what you could do is um, give him... Four million this year, then five million, because I think the qualifying offer is a salary you had in your final year. Is it not? It's not the a- average annual salary. Um, we can get that clarified. I, I think that's what, how it works out. So we need if you even want to beach. We do, like, you know, bat line is called beach. You know, we got a quick question for it. What you got? Thanks. Two minutes with beach, and we can get a sponsor. That works, I think. We need to get our sales team on that one. But uh, yeah, but if, if you make it $4 million to five, then that means the qualifying offer is $5 million. I think that gives them some, some security because even if he's not great, the Canucks are probably not going to decline a qualifying offer in year three for Bo Horvath, even if he's only a 50-point get player at that point. I think he's guaranteed three years of you know $14 million pretty much if he signs, the, I mean, probably four years of that, right? Because, I mean, the Canucks have four more years of control. So in effect, if he signs a two-year contract, He's pretty much guaranteed money for the next four years, and then he's going to be UFA. So I think that if if you approach this the right way with his representatives and with him, I think there is a deal like that to be made. And I know some people say you can leverage the UFA year, the RFA years uh, for the UFA years and bring the average annual salary down. But if you have to pay him at least four million over the next two years, then five million for years three and four, because that's most likely what his agents are going to be asking for. 
how much are you bringing down the salaries in year five, six, and seven anyways when he is – even when you are buying UFA years? You're still going to have to pay him $6 million for those UFA years, right? I mean there's no way – both our best representatives are going to say they're going to take less than six, maybe even seven million over the two, three uh, UFA years they're going to be buying. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I think Canucks have to look at it this way: What are they more afraid of? That they have to pony up for for Bo Horvat if he if he explodes offensively, or the risk that he doesn't and they pay for it ahead of time. And that's why I think the bridge deal makes sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I think that's something why, why they have to uh, seriously look at it. And um, there is a way for that to work. I, I still think, though, the Canucks, at the end of the day, will end up signing to a six-year contract. I still think that is what will happen. But ideally speaking, I'm sort of – I understand what you're saying because I have my trepidations about Bo Horvat. I think he's fantastic. I love Bo Horvat. I'm a huge fan of his. I enjoy watching him play. But I'm not sure how good he really is yet. And um, if he wants a long-term contract that reflects that of a – borderline first-line player or an actual first-line player, I'd like to see a little bit more. And if, and if seeing a little bit more means I have to pay him a bit more, I'll do that happily because at this point in the situation, I think um, you can get Bo Horvat signed even if you're paying him six, over $6 million per year over six or seven years. I think it's a worthwhile investment if he's that good. Mm-hmm. And, and there's never an issue with paying stars. That's, no. that's never an issue. No. If you're getting your money's worth, that's not a problem. No, I, I mean, like, some of my concerns with Bo Horvat, I know we talked about his possession metrics, some of his shot quality metrics, and how uh, we kind of glossed over this, but, like, he, he was the worst penalty killer in the league last year. One of, like, the bottom three, I think. But I have a few, like, qualitative concerns, concerns about building a team around him. He doesn't use his line mates. <laughs> like, <laughs> you can't have a franchise center who doesn't facilitate offense through his entire line. Yeah, that's a fair that's a fair point because he is not exactly an offensive. Uh, he, he's not a big playmaker. It hasn't been yet, and there are a lot of things about him that I want to see improve. Uh, I do think there is a chance that he can improve because he has surprised us all along. But there's also a very good chance that a guy like Brock Besser has such a good and positive year, and maybe even Sven Berchi does, that it makes us look at Borovat a little bit differently. He may not have as big a gap between him and the second best young player on the team. So I think I think it's going to be a very interesting season. It's, and it's an interesting contract situation. I do think the Canucks are not sold that Bo Horvat is a first-line player. And I think that's why this contract situation has taken a bit longer. Because in reality, if you wanted to get Bo Horvat signed to a team-friendly contract, that time was probably last summer but that's not to say that Bo Horvath's camp was even that receptive to those talks they knew that if he has a decent year their leverage just increases but in terms of leverage the Canucks still have the ultimate leverage if he doesn't want to sign a contract he doesn't get paid he doesn't play I know you don't want to drag it through the mud but when people sit here and talk about the Canucks have no leverage and all the leverage is in Bo's corner sure it is sort of but not really the ultimate hammer still lays with the Canucks and depending on how willing they are to use that can really affect how these negotiations go. But if he's a guy you want to build around, um, you know, having a big-time contract dispute and him sitting out of camp is not a very good look for anybody. I mean, like you said, I think we, we always think about RFA years as, as being hard on the players, but this is especially true when we talk about years where the player doesn't have the option for to, to file for arbitration. And, and I think Horvat's still two years away from that. So... Yeah. Yeah, he, like he's, I, the ball is in the team's court. It is. I, I know I, I keep hearing, you know, let Bo has all the leverage. Only for perception, really, yeah, right? I, I mean, it's that. only for, yeah, I don't see that. Only for perception he does because if he holds out or whatever, I mean, it just makes it puts pressure on the organization, puts pressure on the team. It becomes a big storyline. It's a distraction. Of course it is. But the ultimate hammer is still with the team. So it, it really, uh, this is where it's going to be really interesting to see how um, Benning and the Canucks approach this, because this is a pivotal moment, and will they sort of, you know, draw a line in the sand, or will they sort of follow the same mantra they've done before, which is at the end of the day, pay the guy what he wants, which we saw with you know Brandon Sutter, a different situation, but you know, generally speaking, they pretty much given the players closer to what they want than what they actually were looking for when the negotiations began. I don't know. It seems like they're playing hardball this time. 
It does. And that's not the worst thing to do. I, I think that it's well within their rights to play hardball. You take the summer, take your time to negotiate this contract. It's too important to get it wrong and, you know, jump into anything too hastily. So I'm on board with, you know, playing a little bit of hardball. I'm not saying disrespect bull or bad. This is all about, see, none of this is about disrespect. You know, that's why I'm all about giving a very lucrative bridge deal because oftentimes the bridge deal players take a little bit less than what you would expect, right? But I think if you make it really worth his while, I think that shows a lot of respect too. Mm-hmm. I, I would agree. I mean, how would you feel if you had like 20 million locked up? Yeah. <laughs> Here's something people don't consider, and, and we just talked about this, is the way RFA years work is like a short-term deal, it guarantees him a certain amount of salary. It's, it's, it's really a continuous contract in a way. It has the ability to be on the low end for the player. It's virtually two team options for the team that happen year after year. You know, I mean, if you really wanted to pull it down that way, I mean, each year you got to negotiate. He doesn't have to sign his uh, qualifying tender, right? I mean, he, he can not sign it and they can sit out, but he's guaranteed. You can you can structure a two year deal so he's guaranteed twenty million over the next four years, pretty much. I mean, the Canucks could. I mean, if, is he, do you really do? Does anybody think he's going to be so bad that Canucks just dump him? No. After two years, I mean, it's not going to happen. They're not going to just renounce his rights. This won't happen. Most marketable player, and it's not even close. No doubt. And that here's matters. the thing. And after four years, if the Canucks want to go down that road and just qualify, 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 he signs it, then he's UFA in four years. He can make even more money after those after the $20 million he just banked. So I'm just saying, in terms of the business side, when people talk about how you know you can't go short-term because it screws Bo Horvath, it really doesn't. You, there are workable solutions where are their heads at right now? That's a question I really have about the organization and Bo Horvat. And it's really difficult to say which side is being reasonable, which isn't. Because Bo Horvat's willing to sign a six-year contract worth, say, 4.5 per season. I think we'd all be like, you know what, why? No, sure, sign, sign me up. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. <laughs> of course. Uh, I think that would be a pretty good move for the Canucks. It would be fantastic. But I don't see Bo Horvat's camps you know, settling for that. And you know, if if the annu- average annual salary is going to be closer to six million, which it conceivably could be, their ask could conceivably be that. I mean, they could conceivably ask for in the two UFA years seven million per year. Mm-hmm. I mean, they could get four, and then they want seven the next two. They, they look at their salaries, they look at the average salary, and they say, well, um, he's outproduced the Sedins this one year. He's going to outproduce them the next couple of years. Why should he not be getting seven million and four? So if if I'm his agent, I, I look at years, the two UFA years, and I'll take a dime less than seven million. Not right now, at least. No, I Yeah, that's tricky. It's a tough situation. It's it's a really tough contract, and and I know you know he's the face of the franchise, and we love Bo, and we think he's gonna you know he wants to be here, and he does want to be here, but uh, yeah, this is this is not an easy contract to negotiate. Like uh, I can't get a grip on on what Bo is. No. <laughs> I've had to watch him for what? What has he been in the Canucks organization four or five years now? Yeah, he's been here for. Uh, yeah, he was drafted in two thousand and fourteen. Two thousand thirteen. Yeah, Gons was twelve. Gons was twelve. Two thousand thirteen because Vertana was fourteen. Yes, you're right. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's been a few years, but he's so young still, right? I mean, he, he's he's only what twenty two. He he he's got so much more upside in his game. I really think that he's continue to grow as a player and if you do pay him over his prime years i don't really have that much of a problem with it i mean i don't think the contract's gonna hurt them that much even if they pay him five and a half million say you know it's it's a tough spot and it does sort of dictate what can happen because what how much money do you think a guy like bach besser would be demanding in two years if he has a 30 goal year in the next couple years Ooh, that's tough he's good He's good. He's really good. Now, Brock Besser, I have no issues with, with evaluating. I think he is... The more the more I look into it, I think he's the real deal. I think he's he's the crown jewel. Well, up until Pedersen was drafted, he was the crown jewel of this rebuild. He really was. And, and to go back on Pedersen, um, he's good. Like, he's, he's fucking good. <laughs> the, the, kid, the kid has a lot of... No, he, he's got a lot of talent. And the more I see him, the more I talk to people, you know, not just in Vancouver, about him. It pretty much is a consensus. We talked about this just after the draft podcast, too. If he was a little bit heavier, he'd, he'd be a surefire top two or three pick. Like, there's no question. In this year's draft? Certainly. And this, you're right, right? I mean, yeah, this year's draft. I mean, you know, we can't really talk about the next year's draft or anything yeah, like that. But, <laughs> but as, as far as this year's draft goes, you're talking about a guy that probably should have gone higher than he did. 
if he was a little bit heavier. And you see the skill. You, I, I know it's only development camp and he's only going up against young players and doesn't mean much, but you can't teach those hands, dude. And it's not, and it's not, and it's not Robbie Shrimp. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's not just like that because you watch the kid. It's a different level. His smarts, his ability to see the ice. He sees the game differently. He has all the ability. Question is, will he pan out? But I have a hard time seeing Pedersen not working out. I mean, the kid has way too much talent. Mm-hmm. No, I, I totally agree. And and uh, on, a, on a slightly unrelated note, did you see people giving Canucks Army a hard time for not covering, quote unquote, not covering the prospects development camp? Really. Yeah, did you not see that? I, I saw a little bit of something, but okay, so tell me, break it down for me. Well, I, I send out a questionnaire or a question uh, request for the, mon- the Monday mailbag, and, and uh, somebody responds with, is Canucks Army going to acknowledge that the development camp is on? <laughs> you only knew how much work we put in these last few months. I want to ask this person, like, how much does he think we make? <laughs> and, and how much does he think we've put into this? I, I spent four Fridays in a row writing prospect profiles. That's not natural. <laughs> no, that's not usually what you do. Um, no, no, and I, I should be drinking. Yeah, no, and I, I cut myself short, but I'll, I'll just leave it at that. I should be out at a show. <laughs> I'm writing about Josh Brook. Yeah. Uh, I get it. I mean, fans, they want content. content. It's free content, but they want more of it. And when we set the standard, I can see, you know, fans get greedy. It's like, hey, you know, you got to set the standard. You got to follow up. But that's hard to do. And um, you're right. I mean, you know, guys got families. I mean, Beecher's got a family. Jeremy's got a family. Um, A lot of other contributors to Canucks Army have families and other jobs and work and, you know, holidays and vacations and stuff coming up through the summer. So, you know, trust me, everybody is doing the best they can. I mean, we're recording this on a Friday right now. It won't be posted on a Friday, but it's a Friday evening and you and I are doing the podcast. So, um, you know, we all try to do everything we can. And if that's not good enough, we'll try to be better, okay? Yeah. Well, like, (laughs) this is my third (laughs) job. (laughs) In a couple months, I'll look back on this and it will not bug me, but at the moment, sad. Oh, that is the most Uh offended I've been from a comment. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's not so bad. It's all right. JD, don't let it it bother you. One was worse for me than all the ones where people are like, yeah, maybe JD should die from a thousand paper. Oh, yeah. Or JD Parka. <laughs> yeah, you get a lot of those. And the one dude who's always on you—I don't even know what his name is—but I always Powell. see him. What's that, Powell? Yeah. Alan? Yeah. Alan Powell? Whatever. Yeah, that dude. Yeah, he's the man. That uh, Stefan Heck made about that. No, I didn't. I gotta see that. You did. You did a gift. God. Okay. So he he searched up all of Alan Powell's interactions with me, and and he made it into a gift form. And in this GIF, you scroll for pages and pages. Oh, wait, wait. I did see that. It keeps, it just keeps going and going and going. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. I'm not remembering. Yeah, that is awesome. I love the good. Real Good Show podcast, and I'm going to take a moment right now. If you don't listen to Real Good Show, you're doing it wrong. It is, like, the funniest podcast I listen to, hands down. But still, that is my favorite content from that trio, even though it was just Stefan. That's just stuff. Oh, that's awesome. That is my favorite real good show content. Yeah, I love all those boys. Uh, I listen to them whenever, whenever I can, and it's a good podcast. There's a, there's a lot of good content gets built out through here. I mean, you have the podcast, you have these guys, you have you have Ryan Beach and his Game Time podcast. So, I mean, you have a lot of good quality content coming out of this market right now. It's it's only getting better too. I, I heard about this new uh, Sportsnet station. Oh yeah, that thing. Yeah, heard about them. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> more good content on the way more good content yeah i guess so yeah speaking of employment i'm i'm officially unemployed for a few days oh my <laughs> i wonder what that could be related to who knows who knows time will only tell only time will tell it's a tenuous only time, time in the marketplace everybody yeah going everywhere it's yeah i'm a, i'm a tentative free agent yeah are you that's uh yeah i'm not sure about that i'm looking for a long-term commitment i want to be the face of a franchise and uh i value myself far higher than uh well no you know so announcement coming at some point i will have news i will have news jd 
of my future at some point so this let me summer. Put to you this way, are you selling yourself <laughs> hypothetically as a Bo Horvat or as a Brock Besser? Ooh. Two, two media entities, whoever. Connor McDavid, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want the hundred and six million dollar contract. See, no, that's, I'm just... that's funny because I would sell for me. I would sell like Max Lapierre. I got the smile. I get under people's skin. You go straight for Connor McDavid. We're, we're on no, different man. levels here, dude. I I, I take the uh, Michael Carcone contract, twenty five thousand dollars signing bonus, fifty thousand dollars salary in the minors. You know, <laughs> that's somebody who knows the Canucks when like just off the, you know, out of nowhere they pull out Michael Carcone. Yeah, well, I mean, that's something that's like sitting. <laughs> dormant waiting to be brought up you follow yeah. this team well it's one of those things i enjoy because here's the thing you look at different sports right i mean you have the nfl you have and the nba the rookie contracts are pretty lucrative in hockey rookie contracts are shit i mean relatively speaking i mean we're just talking about relatively speaking I'll I mean, sign even one. <laughs> yeah, i know exactly me too i can't be worse than Mackenzie stewart yeah well debatable but the thing is, like for instance, even baseball players, if you're the first round pick, you're getting all these signing bonuses, right? I mean, you're getting a lot of guaranteed money up front. In hockey, you're almost getting no guaranteed money. The signing bonuses are like, you know, ninety thousand, and then you know the AHL salary is like seventy thousand. So if you're a top prospect, you're only getting like a couple hundred, you know, thousand guaranteed. I know if you're a top prospect, your signing bonus is like a couple hundred k. You can get you can get a bit more. But if you're like a mid round pick or whatever, you're not getting a lot of money. You're really not if you sign an entry level contract. So I've always been fascinated about the. And the bonuses they get in the AHL contracts. At the end of the day, most draft picks end up making somewhere like eighty thousand American of real money if they play in the AHL and they sign an entry level contract with the bonuses. But then the good prospects will get a ninety thousand bonus, which is sort of one of the max those they can give out. So I always enjoy going through the contracts and and you know you got guys like uh, Zach McEwen making like ninety thousand signing bonus, seventy in the minors. He's guaranteed hundred sixty thousand American. Carcone, if you're on the other hand, is guaranteed 80000 That's pretty much the minimum almost. So, you know, that's why I put myself on the Carcone scale. Fair, fair. <laughs> well, in that case, in that case, I'm going to put myself in Carcone. I'm going to put myself in... Who was in the ECHL last year? Oh. Jan Pavel LaPlante. Jan LaPlante. There it is. Yeah, but... Yeah, but Yan Pavel Laplante. Okay, I'm gonna guess here. I think he signed a better signing, but I think he got like a almost ninety thousand signing bonus. Um, and I think it's almost seventy thousand in the minors. So let me bring this up. So you you may have been besting me. You're trying to best me here. Well, maybe. I, I yeah, you are. If I did, it would be on. Oh, you oh you you totally bested me. Yeah, I was right. Yan Pavel Not... get more money than Carcone. I have no idea, but he did get. 92,000 signing bonus for the next three years. Each year, he gets a $92,000 signing bonus and a $70,000 minor salary. So he's guaranteed $160,000 American. Wow. And all that to, <laughs> to play in the UCHL. UCHL. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think I chose so. the wrong line of work. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Just making, but, but that's just an interesting juxtaposition between what sort of players that got drafted in the NHL are guaranteed in their entry-level contracts as opposed to um, other professional sports. Um, I'm not saying you should feel sorry for any of these prospects. It's just the reality that they don't really get a lot of money up front right away. Unfortunately, no. unlike the NFL where they'd start with like a $20 million a year contract. And, and then you cut your ass up in two years. Yeah, it's so interesting. <laughs> the NFL is like, how did their union not work out guaranteed contracts? Oh man, that's that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, that's that's. that's a, how much time do you have? Yeah, how much time do you have? Let's get into this. But uh, so okay, well, I think we're almost coming to the end of the podcast. Wouldn't you say, JD? Do you have something else you want to add here before we wrap up? Well, I, I think once we got into the like, we were making comparisons. <laughs> Like you're Carcone, I'm Yan Pavel Lafont. Once we crossed that plane, I think that we were already like, at, we we've exhausted our content base. Yeah, but I'm disappointed we didn't even get into the uh, Michael Chapu contract or the McEnany contract. We we really dropped the ball here, dude. McEnany, interesting contract. Okay, back ish. Has to clear next year. Versatile fourth line forward. He's okay. I like his deal. I don't know why people are complaining about it on Twitter. That's silly. Yeah, I, I don't get the Shapu thing. And why, why would anybody complain about the Shapu contracts? It's under 700k. 
They can, they can hide it. <laughs> like, they clear the minimum, or sorry, the maximum by 300k. They can bury Shapu. Yeah. And, see, like, imagine getting mad over that. Yeah. I see. I, I like, you know, I, I can be skeptical and I can criticize and I'm, I'm all about it, but certain things, like, dude, just, just, just save it. Okay? Just, just, just save certain things, put it in your pocket. And then when something really stupid happens, then go all in on, on the negativity. Because if you're sitting here getting, you know, blow your gasket over Michael Chaput, you're doing it wrong. He was better than Jason Magna. He's only making 10K more than Jason Magna. I think it's okay. To that point, like, Canucks Army and Jackson McDonald raised this point. We get such a hard time for being nitpicky over contracts worth, hmm, say, $2.65 million or $3.6 million. I'm not going to name the players. And one's no longer on the team. Yeah, yeah. We get a really bad (laughs) rep because we're really, you know, antsy about those deals. And then those same people who are unhappy with with the way we approach those deals are losing their shit over Michael Chaput. And just give it a rest. It's okay. Chaput's actually a decent player. If he was a 13th forward, I wouldn't complain, depending on who he beats out or whatever the case is. But I think Michael Chaput is a... a is a replacement level sort of you know bottom four player hashtag Shapu belongs on my fourth line yeah hashtag yeah I mean, you know him and Gaunt have some decent moments mm-hmm. bring back Skilly too I'm for bring it. back oh, no 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 I'm not for that <laughs> no, let, let's, let's not say things we can't take back JD they were a really good fourth line <laughs> I know I don't want I don't want anything uh, Jack Skilly no dude no That that's not good those are not rebuilding moves okay fine <laughs> well, well, now that I've been, I've had my idea put down. I guess we can shut down the show because I've got nothing left. I've been <laughs> now that Jack Skilly's been shot down as an idea. I got nothing left. Yeah, man. Well, that's the end of the road for 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 today, then, JD. And uh, don't, I, you shall not bring up Jack Skilly's name again. I know he's he was fine. I get it. It just makes no sense for a player like that to be on this team. It just doesn't. Okay. <laughs> All right. Development. I made a terrible mistake. <laughs> you made a terrible. You have. You should hang your head in shame. I am. <laughs> yeah, the cone of shame as well. What 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 cartoon was that from? Oh, cone of shame. Yeah. Whatever it was, but it was pretty funny. Anyways, as as we continue on with summer, enjoy the summer. Enjoy more content at Connect Army. I know it's summertime and the content isn't coming as fast and furious as you may want it as it was during the draft. But continually, every day, most every day, there's content on ConnectsArmy.com, so please check it out. And what else, JD? We're going to keep the podcast going, right? Yeah, we are. Well, at least for now. Yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm still doing our thing. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, there there, what, what's, there might be some stuff going on with Connects Army, too, in the future. Oh, so. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so see, yeah, yeah. So, oh, no, now, now you're dropping out, huh? <laughs> see, you're waiting for that. You're you you were not waiting for that. You were not expecting that. No, I guess you owed it to me though. For yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I would like to bid you adieu on another episode of the Canucks Army Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, rate, review, subscribe, and uh, catch you on the flip side. Awesome. Thank you. Peace out. <laughs>